Welcome to this episode of the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Welcome, Darren Burgess. Cheers, Brookie. That uh, was another version of You'll Never Walk Alone. It was actually the very first version ever recorded by Frank Sinatra uh, back in 1945. And uh, the reason we chose the Frank Sinatra version was because it was the choice of our guest. And we're very privileged today to have... Uh, as our guest, Justin Langer, the current Australian cricket coach, cricket legend, and all-round uh, great guy. JL, welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Hey, Brookie, Burjo, thanks for the invitation. I feel honoured, actually. <laughs> Not at That's all. Very Not much our honour, mate. Uh, Frank Sinatra, always a fan. Oh, yeah, Frankie, I mean... <laughs> When I think about him, he was at the he was at my mum's funeral. My beautiful mum passed away a few years ago from ovarian cancer, so uh, he was always a favourite in our house. Um, my way, of course. What a song! I mean, when you grow growing up, I think the most important thing that you have to learn from a kid through to be, becoming a man is that you have to do it your way. You've got to trust your instincts. You've got to trust what you stand for, and uh, I guess that's where. The great Frank Sinatra comes in there. He certainly did uh, it his way. He did, he did indeed. Joel, and you did it your way. And uh, look, there are so many things we'd love to chat to you about today. But I want to start with your uh, your first test. First test match, you were sitting at home in uh, in Perth, minding your own business, all ready to, uh, to watch. I think it was the fourth test against the West Indies, which started in Adelaide the following day. And you got a phone call. Yeah, amazing how it works out. In fact, it's been incredible throughout my career how I'd say little bits of luck and usually at someone else's expense. I mean, in that case, 1993, Damien Martin, my great friend then, who I'd grown up all the way through my junior cricket with, he was poked in the eye by Bobby Simpson at a training session the day before and Tony Mann, the great rocket man who, who got a score 100 as a night watchman for Australia years before he was the cricket manager at the Wacker. He rang me and said, listen, mate, you, you've been selected to play cricket for Australia tomorrow. And he said, you've got an hour to get to the airport. If you don't get to the airport, because I had to go from Perth, I'm going to have to find someone else. So I um, packed up all my things, got into the, uh, got a lift out to the airport and just sat there and reflected for from that flight from Perth on the dream was becoming a reality. So it's amazing how quick how it all came about. And it was a pretty uh, spectacular start to your uh, to your first innings. Yeah, it was. It was a more spectacular start actually the night before because when I arrived in the the Hindley Park Royal, I walked in and Bobby Simpson had come and picked me up from the airport and he uh, I walked into the um, the hotel and on the left there there's a big bar and there sitting was um, my absolute hero back then having a jug of beer so um, a, a jug of beer and a midi or whatever and I walked in there they are and I introduced myself to Alan Border the great Alan Border David Boone who was my, my bloody hero um, the War Brothers Craig McDermott Murphy and Healy and they're all just the night before the test match so to actually meet my heroes um, it was it was an unbelievable experience. Then go up to my hotel room, and when you you know I walked in, there's a big box on the bed, and it says Justin Langer, Australian Test cricketer, written in permanent marker on top. I open up this box, and you know when you play for Australia for the first like 
it's like Christmas for an Aussie bloke because you get so much stuff. You know, there's tracksuits and there's jumpers and there's sunglasses and there's all this. But at the bottom of my box is this thing called a baggy green cap. And, uh, you know, I put it on my head and I, was, I undid my buttons down to my belly button because that's what the, my heroes, Dennis Silly and Rod Marsh, used to do. And I was playing reverse hooks and hook shots and hitting Ambrose back over his head for six in front of the mirror. Um, and what a magic experience because no longer was it a baggy green cap or the baggy green cap it's now my baggy green cap so uh, an unbelievable experience and the next day of course you know, I remember walking down to the have a hit at Adelaide Ovals and a bloke taps me on the shoulder and he says oh what do you think about batting number three for Australia today, son? I said, JL, he goes, I said, no worries, AB. So not only have I got my baggy green cap, but AB's calling me JL, and I'm calling AB, AB, mate. It's unbelievable. And then we bowled first, so that was good. Um, so I had a bit of time to think about it. And then Mark Taylor was out first ball when we had to bat just before stumps. And I walk out to bat, and um, Ian Bishop, six foot ten Trinidadian, built like Adonis, runs in, watch the ball, watch the ball, watch the ball. And the very first ball hits me in the back of the head. I mean, this day and age will be out for concussion. But um, my first ball in test cricket, I was almost knocked out. It was a bloody disaster. <laughs> and that turned out to be one of the most memorable test matches ever, really. Well, it was, Pete. And the thing is, I probably, I can't tell you how much money I've made out of telling my first test match story. It usually goes for about 25 minutes. I get people up on the stage with me, someone acting like Desmond Haynes who was saying, kill him, Bishy, kill him, Bishy, kill him, Bishy. And then someone, I usually get the prettiest lady who's in the audience to get up on stage and say, you can be Keith Arthurton. Because Keith Arthurton was the, he made Merv Hughes look like Michael Clark. Like he, he was the prettiest cricketer. You know, he was all gelled up. He had the beautifully laundered, uh, clothes, he had the sunglasses, he had the gel all over his face, and he was dancing around saying, you know, he's scared, bishy, scared, bishy, scared, bishy. So, you know, that story goes forever. But And we ended up losing the game by one run. Um, I was the second last man out. We lost by one run. And um, I always remember, because one thing Alan Border, the great Alan Border, who achieved everything in the game of cricket except beating the West Indies in a series, and it was almost like I was looking at his face after... And it was all, and we had to go to the Wacker the next game, which we lost in about two days in. Um, and I just remember looking at AB thinking, you've achieved everything and you haven't because we got so close yet so far to the one goal, which was to beat the West Indies. And he never did that, if you can believe that. And you uh, you had a bit of a penchant for getting hit in the head. I remember a famous <laughs> test in, uh, in South Africa uh, where uh, you got uh, knocked out and... Uh, there was significant repercussions to that uh, during the game. Well, I, honestly, if I had have played in this current era, I would have missed a lot of cricket. I did get hit in the helmet a lot. I suppose it's a uh, it's the perk of the job of being a top three batsman. Um, but it was at, funnily my first test against the West Indies in Adelaide. First ball knocked out, or pretty much knocked out. My hundredth test in South Africa. So, and that's something like my first test, I'd aspired to, imagine playing 100 test matches, my 100th test in South Africa, first ball, knocked out. But this time I was knocked out cold by uh, Mackay Natini. So, um, yeah, you know, first test, 100th test, first ball, hit badly in the helmet. 
and you, uh, you obviously went off and uh, was diagnosed with concussion and they tried to rule you out of the, uh, the game and uh, things got a bit tense in the second innings and uh, yeah. you decided you were going to bat. It was so funny though because that's right, I, was in, I was in hospital for two days and I, lay, and I was so, and it was the first time I'd really felt the effects of concussion. And I felt so sick. And then I get to we get to the fifth day, and on the morning of the fifth day, Damien Martin was about 80 not out, and we were about I think we were four down overnight chasing, let's say 250 or 300 runs. I can't remember exactly. And I'd literally been lying in bed, and I got myself out of bed, and I went and saw Mato at breakfast, and I said, "Look, mate, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but no matter what happens, all the doctors are telling me I can't bat." And he goes, no, no, he, he understood. And then I went down to the ground that morning. And I'll never forget this. I, I had to address the team and say to them, guys, you know how much whatever happens, I can't, the doctors won't let me bat. And I, I remember Adam, uh, Matthew Hayden and Andrew Simons both playing, looking at me and going, what are you talking about? This is the Australian cricket team. And they had this look on their face and they knew I'll never forget that look. It was almost like they were disappointed that if it came to the crunch and I wasn't going to walk out to bat. And uh, so as the game goes on, we're, we're getting closer. Marley got his 100, just got out after his 100. And we get down to eight wickets down. And I'm sitting there. I, I just kept remembering the look on their face. I thought, what am I doing here? Like, what do you mean I'm not going to bat? Imagine if we're nine down... Australia lose a test match. So I start going, no bugger this. So I go down into the change room. I start putting my whites on and I start putting my pads on. And I remember Steve Bernard, the manager, he, he's gone white. He goes, what are you doing, J.I.? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? Mate, there's no way we are losing to South Africa in this test match. And I'm going to go out and bat. He goes, you can't, you know. And then punter, Ricky Ponting, the captain, who's like my brother, he, he goes, mate, you're not batting. I'm telling you, you are not batting. I said, I'll tell you what, if you don't let me bat, we're not friends anymore. He goes, what do you mean we're not friends? I said, well, I'm telling you, I'm batting. There's no way. And I said, I will regret this. If I don't go out to bat, I'll regret this for the rest of my life. He's going, mate, we're going to have to get the security. I'm not letting you go out. I said, well, I'll tell you, we're going to have to have a fight. We're going to, you and me are going to wrestle. You're going to have to wrestle me all the way out there. Because I'm telling you, I'm going out there to bat. So then it's this massive dilemma. Like there's this big meeting. The doctors are going, you can't bat. I'm saying, I, am, I don't give a rat's ass what you say. Oh, I'm batting. This is a, I'm playing cricket for Australia, and I'm representing my country. Don't tell me I'm not going to bat. So I'm sitting there, and I am nervous as hell because I'm thinking, far out, what am I doing? Now I'm like a real knob of myself because I'm all padded up, and I'm having a fight with the captain. I'm having a fight with the manager. And thankfully, I think Michael Kasparich and Brett Lee got us over the line. So... Um, I didn't have to bat, but I'll never forget two things after that. One, South Africa, they, you know, they thought they were going to win the test. They, they lost, they'd lost 3-0. And I remember Graham Smith walking up and South Africa, and I went out to shake their hand. And I had on my whites and my pads on. So as if to say, you know, boys, you reckon you got close, but I was still coming out to bat. <laughs> and then I remember we sang the team song, and the same two blokes, who are like my brothers, Haydos and Andrew Simons, the look of disappointment I had that morning, they're looking at me going, yeah, mate, respect, respect. We knew you'd get up and we knew you'd fight with the boys, respect. And it was sort of the, those two emotions of, oh, mate, what do you mean you're not going to play for us, back for us? To four hours later, yeah, mate, respect. We sang the same team song together and, uh, yeah, it ended up being a... Bloody good experience. <laughs>
that's a great story. Great story. Obviously, as a coach now, you'd have a completely different attitude to uh, if one of your players was uh, was concussed. Well, yeah, maybe. But what I was going to say before, an old SAS mate of mine told me years ago, Justin, most people can live the dream, but not many people can live the reality. And that stuck with me. It's like a lot of people want the baggy green cap, or a lot of people want to be a doctor, or a lot of people want to have a green beret and be an SAS soldier, or a lot of people want to drive a Mercedes-Benz or live in a mansion. Everyone can live that dream, but not many people can live the reality of it. So my point is, to play your first test match, I have my baggy green cap on my head, I'm calling ABJL, but what happens next is the reality. I've got to go and face the mighty West Indies. And that's when you've got to dig really deep and ask yourself, do you really want this? Do you really want this? It's the same in, the, in that 100th test. You know, I get knocked out. The reality is, is there can be um, some repercussions, but do you, do you really, I mean, the, you know, the reality is I also, I'm representing my country, so how deep do you want to dig to, um, to get the rewards, I guess, or the dream? I read JL, it's Virgil here, I read a, um, or I heard, uh, I reckon it was James Brayshaw talk about how he used to train with you in the morning. Um, because it was the only time and, and you'd turn up with black eyes and all kinds because yeah. you'd been up prior to that, um, evidently uh, getting in, uh, you know, because you, you're into martial arts. And so yeah. you'd do that and then train with Brayshaw before school. Is that uh, obviously... One of my great stories, for those who know James Brayshaw, I mean, James Brayshaw is another one. Of, he is literally one of my brothers. He is a great friend of mine, but... This sums up Brace, and I say this with great respect, Berger, because he's a ripping bloke and he's a great mate. But I used to be I used to be in the Sunrise Dojo, so by definition, we trained at six a.m. and I and I used to train three mornings a week, six a.m. and then on occasion I'd go and then in the pre-season go and have a hit with Brace in at the indoor centre at the Wacker. You know, I turned up this one morning sums up Brayshaw and it sums up our relationship. But and we talk about first balls again, Pete. I've rocked up. It's cold. It's winter. We're in pre-season training. I've just been beaten up. I did. I had a, I'm a black eye. I had a, I can't remember if I had a grading, but I've been pretty well bashed up that morning. And Brace goes, well, you're warmed up. You can go first. So I go into the bowling and the very, the very first ball hits me straight in the nuts. <laughs> Like I've not only been beaten up and had an hour, an hour and a half of beaten up in the ring or on the in the dojo, but in the very first ball, it's cold in the indoor centre and it hits me straight in the box, <laughs> and I've gone down. It was a worse pain than getting beaten up in martial arts. I can promise you. There's no, as you both both know, and a lot of listeners will understand. There's no worse feeling. Anyway, I'm on the ground, crawling around on the ground in absolute pain. Brayshaw jumps off the bowling machine, walks down to me, looking over the top of me. He says, oh, mate, you okay? I said, oh, I'm dying. And he goes, he goes, look on the bright side of it, mate. I said, the bright, what's the bright side of it? He goes, didn't happen to me. <laughs> and that, that pretty well sums up my great mate Brayshaw. He's always got a good sense of humour. And the only thing, the, the silver lining for him, the, the bright side that had happened to his mate and it didn't happen to yeah, him. Yeah, it didn't happen to him. I guess it, um, 
one of the things that we like to do here is is ask you know more what makes people great and what makes people I know you you're too humble to talk about yourself but now that you're a coach you know mm. me hearing stories like that I love that because it shows an unbelievable commitment to um, to you know to getting to the top and to making it and now now that you're a coach and in charge of you know what is Australia's own team and it, what do you look for in players? Um, uh, how can you tell, I should say, if a player is going to be able to stand up in the heat of battle in an Ashes, um, you know, or in a, in a World Cup? How, how can you tell? What are the signs that you look for in those in those men and women? Yeah, well, what I've learned, Burjo, is well, a couple of things. What, what, the truth is you don't know until they stand up. Uh, and that's really important to recognise. You don't know. You, you have a gut feeling, but you don't know. And I, I remember back as a player, I'd scored three test hundreds. And it took. It wasn't until the fourth one against the West Indies in Antigua where I went, right, okay, yeah, I, I, reckon, I, could, I reckon I could make it. So everyone will tell you, I'll oh, back yourself, son, or, you know, have confidence in yourself. You go, yeah, 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 okay. They're all words. But unless you actually do it, it it becomes real it becomes real when you do it. Everyone can talk about it, but and that, my point is, you don't know until you see him do it. So that's number one. But the other thing I've learned is that I, I actually don't care what people say to me anymore, Virgo. Like everyone's going to tell me what they want to what you want to hear. Everyone's going to say that they're almost trained now to tell you what you want to hear. But I don't care about what, what they say. I want to see what they do. There's an old saying that if you preach excellence and walk mediocrity, you're nothing but a common liar. And that's, that's in leadership. That's in life. So my point is I want to see what people do. And a good example, recent example, is Manus Labashane. So we picked him. And everyone thought we were crazy. But what we saw in him was an incredible work ethic. We saw a guy who would play for nothing. We, got, we saw a guy who play, who was that keen and desperate to play the game. He, 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 where some people would say, I remember when he played his, that test in, um, at the Ashes where he came as a substitute mm. for Steve Smith who was badly concussed or hit in the neck by Archer. I remember walking over to the nursery ground and he was in the nets during the test match, the morning of the day three or whatever, and he was in there and he was facing Pattinson, Mitchell Stark, and they were bouncing the life out of him. And he was jumping around like Muhammad Ali. And I walked and I said, listen, mate, um, Smudge, we've ruled him out. He's out for concussion. What do you reckon? You reckon you're up for being his substitute? And he's got this massive smile on his face. He goes, mate, up for it? Are you joking? Mate, get me out there. I'm ready, coach. I'm ready. Get me out there, mate. Come on. Give me the chance. I said, right, oh, you're in. And then he played that innings, and we went, wow, under pressure, not only had he, we'd picked him on his character and his work ethic that all goes into that character, but then he stood up, and you just go, right, respect. And the, there was a, I'm not sure I've met a more popular player than Manus Labashane. Incredibly popular. Unbelievable work ethic. And then he stood up. And that's what you look for. You look for what they do, not what they say, and if they can stand up when the pressure comes on. And can you train that? Can, can you, if you get a really talented sports person, cricket, soccer, netball, whatever, can you actually train that mental resilience by repeatedly exposing them 
to those scenarios? Oh, 100%. You're certainly not born with it, I don't think. You, you, yeah. of, course you, you, of course you train resilient. And actually what happens, in my opinion, is the other thing I look for, Berger, how they, how they bounce back from bad days or adversity. Yes. You know, I, again, I look back on my career. In 1993, I was dropped for the... I played those tests against the West Indies, went to New Zealand, um, and I was dropped. And you got a choice. When, when you have a bad... And look, in cricket... In sport, you have a lot more bad days than good days. I've got a lot more low scores than hundreds. But you've got a choice. Or I got dropped in 93, I got dropped in 2001. And you've got a choice. Do you quit or do you get better? Do you quit or do you get better? It's as simple as that. And that's how you build resilience. The guys who quit, well, they're not becoming more resilient, are they? The guys who yep. decide they're going to get better, they have to you know, look at their physical, they look at their technical, they look at their... Um, they're spiritual, they look at their mental side of the game. You've got to get better. And to get in the Australia, there's only 11 players in the Australian cricket team. So you ha if you want to get another crack, you, one, you want to get selected in the first place, or two, you want to get another crack if you've been dropped or you had some bad days, you've got to get better. And that's what I look at. I mean, you definitely build resilience. Um, it's like concentration. Of course you learn. Concentration, the most important skill in peak performance, in my opinion, is that, um, and of course you learn it. They're, these are learned skills. These are learned arts. Um, and as resilience, yes, of course you can build it and um, you can develop it. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing in the current, and sorry for uh, hogging the questions for a minute, Brookie, but it, it obviously being involved in, uh, I was never good enough to play, so the best thing I can do is put out cones and get people to run and things like that. So... Um, I've seen it change in the 25 years that I've been involved in it. Um, the the player um, ownership of of training and performance, and the player um, desire to have an input into training and performance, and the player um, happiness and well-being. How, how do you balance that side of thing? Things when you know, for example, that if they train particularly hard when it's unpleasant and they might think it's unnecessary, that there's a longer-term play with that particular player or with the team versus keeping players happy. I imagine it's a fine balance, uh, particularly someone with perhaps your background <laughs> and your philosophy on things. Yeah, well, keeping players. I mean, one thing, I've never met anyone who enjoys being rubbish. <laughs> Or enjoys losing. losing. So let's yeah. let's. I, I put this in perspective. It's more fun winning than losing, right? So, I, I hear this. Oh, you know, it's not that much fun. Yeah, yeah. So it's never fun when you're losing, or you're failing. Yep. So I, I always put that into context. But um, there's a couple of things here. I remember when I took over the. Well, there's three. I, think, I guess there's three points. One, when I took over at the Wacker. And you would have hated this, Burjo, I guess, but you, I'm sure you understand and respect it. I took over in a crisis at the Wacker. It was the greatest apprenticeship I could serve leading into the crisis of Australian cricket a few years ago with Sandpaper Gate. But I remember saying, I, I took over halfway through the season um, because we'd had a lot go on at the Wacker. The coach resigned, the captain resigned. And so I took over halfway and I said to our S&C guys, guys, there will be no science for the next three months. Because I had nothing to lose, Berger. I had a three-and-a-half-year contract. I said, the science is all out the door. 
and we are gonna and our guys were were fat. Um, they were me mediocre in performance, mediocre in behaviour. We are gonna flog them. We are absolutely going to take them down to almost ground zero, and we're and this is in the middle of the season. And I remember there was a sports journalist, John Townsend, who works at West. We had our second training at the Wacker, and he goes, he stood next to me, he said, "Mate, I've been I've been reporting on West Australian cricket for twenty years, and I have never seen intensity like this at training. I think we had a three or four hour training session, and I looked at him, I said, mate." This is about seven out of ten. You wait, you wait. These guys do not know what's going to hit them. And we trained and we trained and we trained physically. Um, we trained on our skills. We got fit. We and we absolutely flogged them, Burge. But guess what happened next? And I was probably lucky. We start, we started winning, mate. Yeah. So then blows go. Oh, really? I thought you had to just be happy and just be relaxed and and um, you know you had to just be. Uh, fresh for the game I said that's crap are you going to work and work and I remember Dennis Silly when I was a 17 year old down at the Wacker Dennis Silly pulled us into it and you know this is the great Dennis Silly and he goes and I was at a training session at the Wacker and Dennis Silly the great the legend my hero pulls us all in and he goes boys quick come in I want to talk to you I'm going to give you the three secrets of success and we go what is Dennis these are the three secrets of success what are they? He goes, boys, come in. I'll tell you the first secret of success. You've got to work hard. And we're going, oh, teenage kids going, oh, shit, right, oh, so you got to work hard. Yeah, okay, no, and my mum and dad <laughs> told me that. Yeah. Boys, come a bit closer. I'm going to tell you the second secret of success. So we come a bit closer, and he says a bit more quiet. He goes, you've got to work hard. <laughs> Who knows what the third secret of success is? <laughs> a few of us went there. You gotta work hard. You're bloody right. You gotta work hard. It's the only secret of success. You gotta bloody work hard. And we're going. Oh, okay. Now I've learned about balance. I've learned about it. But, but there's no other secret. You gotta work hard, Berger. You gotta work hard. And I think in this Corona period, I've actually loved it because I've seen. I wanted to see how our guys come back when it's not all on a silver platter. When it's not all laid out for them. And I've been so pumped to see how our guys. Not 85% of them came back in elite condition. They had to go and do it themselves. I love that, Burjo. Yeah. I've loved seeing that. And the other, the last thing I say about players today or, or athletes today, a lot of it is a product of what we create in this world of professionalism. Mm -hmm. Because they, a lot of them don't have to think for themselves. And that takes away a bit of that freedom and that autonomy. And I remember when I was a young player... I had to find my own batting coach. I had to find my own fitness trainer. I had to find my own sports psychologist. I had to find the, my, the people and mentors who would help me because we used to train one night a week. If I wanted to be in the first 11 to play for West Australia, to have any chance to my dream of playing for WL for Australia, I had to do it all myself because we trained one night a week and we had to work during the week. So the point is... The young players, we can point the finger at them, oh, they're not self-motivated. Well, yeah, half the reason is because we don't allow them to be self-motivated in the world that we currently live in. Yeah, there's absolutely a, a... I've noticed in the group that I'm working with, the 12 weeks of corona lockdown or whatever where there was no massage, no physio, no doctor, no float tanks, no anything, um, the same 
same response that you got from the Aussie cricket team, a more resilient group because they didn't have those. So they realised that oh, maybe we don't need those. Maybe we've been pandering them a bit. So, yeah, yeah I've, I've definitely noticed, noticed the same sort of uh, response for sure. Because ultimately when you go out in the middle, you've got your mate and you've got your met, your coaches, but they're just like the voice on your shoulder. They've all helped you along the way, but you're out there by yourself. As a batsman, you're out there by yourself and you're working, and this is this whole mastering concentration and mastering the mental side of the game. You've had to do the, the physical work and the technical work, but ultimately you're out there by yourself. I mean, you're one of your players, whether it's in AFL, when they've got to decide they're going to do the extra gut run it comes from them, right? They haven't got someone, they haven't got the coach running with them or their yes. mates running. They've got to come from them. And that's why, again, I've loved, I love to watch what they do, Burjo. I love to see what their numbers are. And that's one of the great things about measuring their output. I love to see what their numbers are because they can't lie. You can't hide from that. And I love to see what they do because they can't hide from that. You can bullshit people with what you say, but not with what you do, and that's what I'm like. That's the most important thing for me as an hours a coach, is you know it's nice to have fluffy conversations and all happy conversations. I want to see what you do, and if you are struggling, I want to see you stand up to that, and I want to see that you're you know you're seeking help to get to get through that. I want to see what you do, not just this happy fluffy bullshit. I, I, well, it's not in my world. It is not in my world. Now, one of the things that uh, with, and I'll hand it over to you, Brookie, but one of the things that uh, we try and preach and uh, preach with mainly with the AFL boys is when the umpire's about to bounce the ball and you're standing next to an opponent, you know if you've done the work. I, I don't know, but you will know, looking next to that bloke, that you've got two hours of hell that you've got to put yourself through. And if you've had taken shortcuts because you've had a shit diet during the week or you haven't run to the cone or you haven't done those little things, you will know and by the end of that game so will your opponent if you've known if you've if you've ticked every box. hundred percent. My my favourite and that's discipline, right? Been doing things when yes. other people aren't seeing it. And my favourite quote in the world and I it's, I guess it's my mantra in life is the pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. The pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. And I know, I used to train, and I still to this day love training by myself because you know, it's nice to train you know, with other people. And, you know, it's, I think of the, the cyclists, and I don't do much cycling, Burjo, but they say, you know, it's easy. When you're in at four or five in the peloton, it becomes easier. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. No worries. That's great. And that's about teamwork and obviously... My other philosophy in life is about teamwork, so I get all that. But mate, I want to. Tra I train by myself because I know that I, I used to. When I got when I got knocked out in my hundredth test, going to that peak, my batting coach, we caught up after South Africa. Goes, mate, it's time to quit. It's time to retire. It's time to retire, mate. I see. It was like the, my trainer throwing in the white the towel. He's, he said, look, it's, I don't want to see you get hurt anymore. I said, Noddy, mate, I get it, I get it, and I'm nervous as well, but I've promised the boys after we lost the 2005 Ashes, we promised before we retire we're going to win back the Ashes. He said, righto, well, we better get to work then, better we? I said, let's get to work. And I, I swear to God, I used to put, I because I had to get the courage back or the confidence back to play the short ball again because it was such a horrible blow. And every session, I'd, I would be 
I'd have sweat pouring out of my body because I was so scared of what we were doing on the bowling machine, playing the short pitch ball, playing, you know, it was horrible. It was bloody horrible. But I then, I, at the end of every session, as I'd said to him for 10 years before, Noddy, I hate this. I hate everything about it, but I love it because I know no one else in the world is doing this. No one else in the world is doing what I'm doing right now. So at least gives me a chance. And then I had, not only did we won the Ashes 5-0, and then I had four more years of playing professional cricket after that. I could have thrown in the towel, or I did. I remember back in the first year I went to the Cricket Academy, interestingly enough, I was at the Alberton Oval, um, where Port yep. played play back then, and I got my teeth knocked out the game after Christmas by a guy called Shane George, a fast bowler for South, Africa, uh, South Australia. I got all my teeth knocked out. I got my blood at Alberton Oval. Burjo, yes. and I remember going in, I, got, I had to have plastic surgery, I had all my teeth put back in, and two days later, I went to the Adelaide number two, I had stitches all in my face, I had blood still coming out of my mouth, and I Peter Spence, the, batty, the head coach or the assistant coach of the Cricket Academy back then, we went straight back into the bowling machine, and I started facing bouncers two days later, because I knew if I didn't, that's the base at the end of my career because you've got to get back on the horse. You have to get back on. Take, does it take courage? Is it scary? Mate, it is so flipping scary. I hated every minute, but I loved it because I wouldn't have had a cricket career unless I was able to face those fears and I had to face them sooner rather than later. Otherwise, there's no career. And when you're, as you said, when you're standing next to your opponent, or I'm facing a fast bowler, or in AFL, they're standing next to their opponent, or in netball, they're standing next to their opponent. If I know I've done all the work, and I know that there's nothing, and that I've done more than they have, that gives me a great sense of, um, uh, of confidence as well. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. JL, I want to jump back. Uh jump to your role as coach of the, of the Aussie team. I mean, obviously, you came into the job in uh, in the strangest of circumstances. Um, just tell us a little bit about how that uh, that came about and uh, um, how you started off in the job. Well, a couple of things happened. First, I, my, the, I would like all Australians, I saw what happened. I, I'll never forget, I was sitting next to my daughter, Gracie, on the couch. My wife was in London uh, surprising my daughter for a 21st birthday and I was sitting on the couch and it was just before tea in South Africa and we just can't put the talent, the cricket on and I remember seeing this hand and I said to Gracie, Gracie pray that's not Cameron. She goes what do you mean daddy? I said and I knew it was bad because Cameron Bank's got these big hands. I said pray it's not Cameron. Sure enough Cameron Bancroft sandpaper if you if you could line if I honestly if I you could line up a thousand people I know, the last person who I would ever think would do it would be Cameron Bancroft, but it was. And the next morning I went into the Fremantle Markets in Perth here with my hippie daughter, my second daughter, which I've done for the last five years. I went to the Frio Markets and was sitting there and for the last five years before that, I'd we'd go and drink our coffee and eat our gosleme and talk rubbish and just get left alone. That next morning I reckon 30 people come up to me. Well, JL, what's happened? What's happened to our cricket team? And some people were crying. They were angry. They were, they had this emotion. I went, cry, this, mate, this is big. And the next day, 
West Coast Eagles are building their new facility, and I went there for the, as a West Coast Eagles board member. I went, put my hard hat on, went to have a look at this new construction site. I reckon there's about 300 Aussie blokes in their hard hats and their, their high-vis vests and their um, steel cap boots doing, going about their business, and they saw me. I was like, and they're, mate, JL, what has happened? What's happened to our team? We're cheating. And I thought, mate, this is serious. And then a week or so later, our mate, good mate Darren Lehman, he resigned. And I went, and I remember my daughters looking at me going, Daddy, what's this all about? I said, oh, so it's no longer maybe one day there's going to position to the Australian cricket coach. Now it's a reality. And to put it into context, I was living my, my dream job. I was a head coach of the West Australian Cricket and the Perth Scorchers on the board of the West Coast Eagles Footy Club. I was at home at last for, I'd been at home for six years that I hadn't been in my whole adult life. I was living the dream. And then this, again, dream versus reality. Um, there's a spot for the Australian cricket coach. And, I, and, you know, I've loved Australian cricket since I was a little kid. Um, after a bit, I was asked to do the job. It sounds like the dream, but my gosh, I had no idea what the reality of it was. Hmm. That is, the last two years have been really hard. Like the first six months was incredibly stressful. Uh, it took its toll out to learn some lessons. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's how it came about, Pete. It went from a, the dream one day maybe happening to probably a lot earlier than I thought that it became the reality in a really tough time. And when you first got together with the team, I mean, uh, what, what did you observe of, of what was going on with that team? Well, the first thing I did, I, again, I, I'd had the dress rehearsal of um, for six or seven years with WA of a crisis, how we get through it. So the first thing I did was, and, and lots of people have a different view on this, but I'll explain it quickly, is that I went in, I said, guys, this is what we're doing. From this day forward, this is what we're doing. And I addressed all the players in, in Brisbane. I'd already addressed the chairman, the CEO, the high performance manager. This is how I'm going to go about my business. It started off as we're going to earn back respect. We're going to earn back respect. And that's now turned into three words, make Australians proud. And I've literally said those three words every day for the two and the last two years, make Australians proud. And we're going to do it, guys through developing great cricketers and great people. Because as Australians will become proud of us, we'll earn back respect by not only our behaviours and how we perform on the field, but also our behaviours off the field. So great cricketers, great people, and these five values are how we are gonna live. Uh, we're gonna be number one in professionalism, we're gonna be number one in honesty, we're gonna be number one in mateship, we're gonna be number one in learning, and we're gonna be number one in humility. Now, these aren't, necessarily my values these are the values i've learned in australian cricket over 20 years of being involved and i said to the guys and this is how we are going to do it now you've got a choice you're either in or you're out and i remember sending a text message that night to all the people i said this is documenting this who's in and i swear to god within three minutes i had 30 thumbs ups from every single player i'm in and that's how we went. Now, the reason I was so strong with what our values are, because, Berger, you would have seen this, Pete, you would have seen this, a lot of listeners would have said, oh, for 20 years, 
I used to sit every pre-season with different consultants or different coaches, and these are this is our mission statement for the year, and these are our values. And in that day or two days, we'd sit around, and it'd be everyone would be all happy, and oh, this is great, yeah, this is really nice, you know, we've got our values, and we all walk out of the room, we're all singing Kumbaya, and we're all happy, and it's all beautiful. <laughs> Guess what? And actually, my experience, it actually meant shit. It meant nothing. Because no one would, you need someone to lead the values. You can have the fancy posters all over the wall. You can put it on bloody coasters. You can put it on your bits of paper. You can tattoo it on your bloody body. I don't care. All the values are the same. Every team will come up with the same sort of words. But unless you live it every single day, it literally means shit. It's like dunny paper. So I said, this is how we're going to do it. You're either in or you're out. And over the last two and a half years, almost to a man that everyone's bought into it. Um, we've we've talked about making Australians proud. We talk about our values. We talk about great cricketers and great people. Not once have we talked really publicly about being the best team in the world. And now we've got both. We're a very likable team again, and we're the number one ranked team as we sit here now in Test cricket and T20 cricket. So um, that's how it all came about to start us off, Pete. And, and You've had some really um, challenging, uh, really challenging sort of moments, I guess, in that in that couple of years. I mean, uh, so just quickly, I mean, integrating Steve and Dave, Steve Smith and David Warner back into the team. I mean, that must have filled you with a bit of trepidation how that would work. Yeah, really interesting that because I thought, oh, this will be a breeze, but you know, the two great cricketers they'll come back. But I had no idea. I had no idea of the. Um, the scarring that had gone on within the team in that period. So it's funny because Adam Simpson, the West Coast Eagles uh, head coach, is a great mate of mine, about uh, just around the Willie Rioli time um, with his suspension, Simo said, oh, mate, can we go and have a coffee? And we, we just live, we're basically next door neighbours. So we went across the road, had a coffee. He drove down there because he had to go to work. I just walked across the road and... Uh, we took like we always do for about an hour talking rubbish. It was great. And then I'm walking back across the road and he uh, rings me on my phone. He goes, oh, mate, I, I forgot to ask you the question. Um, you know, how did you bring back, the reason I wanted to talk to you, I wanted how you brought back Steve Smith and Dave Warner back into the team? Because, you know, we've got this with Willie Rioli. I said, oh, mate, it was a massive process. We had a guy by the name of Tim Ford corporate consultant, ripping bloke, who's been a big help to me personally in the team. And he went through this, pro went for about nine months, and I thought it was overkill at the time, Pete. I thought, oh, no, but do we really need They're two young blokes, I'll just come back in. But he was able to uh, mediate a number of meetings with the players, with the staff, with the, and all the really tough conversations were had. All the scarring got whittled down, which was great. Um, and it took nine months. It took nine months of really hard work. So by the time they walked back into the team, it was seamless. All the tough conversations, all the history, anything that needed to be worked through was worked through before they came back to do what they do great, which is play good cricket. And uh, they not only played good cricket, they played great cricket. They bought into the culture of what we were trying to do. Um, the tough conversations were had and uh, we've, we've moved forward. And it was it was seamless, but behind the scenes, there was an incredible amount of work that went into it. I think many of our uh, listeners would have seen uh, the TV series uh, on, on the test. And uh, one 
incident I think that uh, that I think we all noticed was uh, the well I was going to say the confrontation, but the discussion with Usman Kawaja, who uh, spoke up as he always does, um, and and basically felt that uh, you know you were probably being a bit hard or or uh, expressed concerns anyway uh, about the relationship between with, you had with the players. I mean, how did you uh, how did you respond to that? Well, first, it's in, a, in the document, a lot of people ask me about that scene with Uzi. And what you've got to understand is that Andre, the cameraman, was literally with us from the moment I had took my first, I did my first radio interview as the head coach of Australia, right through to the last ball of the Ashes, 18, or 18 months or two years later. He, was, he videoed everything. So that was one scene of... Um, yeah, I can't imagine how many hours of video, but the Aussie, I love Usman Khawaja because he's so honest. He, he'll, he, he'll, you know, he'll argue. I mean, Aussie will argue that if something's black, he'll argue it's white. If something's white, he'll argue it's black because that's his his personality. But you know, I, what I've learned as a head coach, what the one of the advantages I got as a head coach is I'm a dad of four kids, so I got four beautiful daughters. And what I've learned as being a dad is that they all come from the same place. They all have the same upbringing, but they're all so different. So the point is, if all my kids are different, all my players are going to be different. And you've got to treat them all differently. And, and in that instance, Aussie had the courage to, to say, and, it, and again, to put it into context, we've just been beaten on the flattest wicket in, at the MCG by India, the first time we'd been beaten by India. So we go back to your last one, Burjo. Oh, let's all be happy to sing Kumbaya. But for the first time, we'd been beaten by India for the first time in our history. So there's a bit of tension, no doubt about it. Um, and But he was honest and, and we we worked together. We, one thing I've learned as a in leadership, if you have the courage to have honest conversations, you build trust. And with more trust, you can have more honest conversations. And then when the really tough conversations had, because you've built trust, and it's all built around this concept of honest conversations. And as a leader, I can't be having honest conversations and not take honest feedback, Pete. And at that time, Uzi, who I respect enormously, gave me honest feedback, and I took it on board, and hopefully I got better for it. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting scene, but it was just all part of, what's gone into building this culture of the Australian cricket team. One last yeah, one. Sorry, the, other, the, 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 one, the one other thing I'll yeah. say, sorry, the one other thing I say, Pete, is, and I, and I mentioned it when I took over West Australia, my way of doing things, and it might be wrong, because, but it's, you know, when I came in, usually you take over a role in uh, when there needs to be some change, right? Now, to make change, you've got to make some tough calls. So in West Australia and in the Australian cricket team, I went in really hard with high expectations. And then over time, I went in hard and have softened over time because I've built great relationships. Different people do it differently. They build great relationships and then, you know, at times they can do it. But my style is to go in hard, set the ground rules, set the... So of course there's going to be some um, there's going to be some rocky waters or there's going to be some stormy waters initially because we're all feeling each other out, aren't we? Yep. But yep. that's okay. Everyone does it different, and that's how I did it. The last one from me is um, the Test match, the Ashes series. Um, 
that we finished up winning uh, in England. Uh, we obviously we had one test where we managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, and I'm just interested to hear the response to that. I mean, we saw a little bit on the on the uh, the uh, TV program about Tim Payne's uh, speaking to the players, but as a coach, I mean, you've just lost a test and, and you know potentially lost the Ashes, although it didn't turn out that way. Devastating uh, a test. Obviously, we shouldn't have lost. Um, how do you sort of pick the players up after that? I mean, uh, they must have been absolutely shattered. I'm sure you were absolutely shattered. And take us through the, you know, the next couple of days and what you, how you went about building them back up to, uh, to perform well again in the next test. Well, Berger asked before about building resilience. There's, there's no better example. I mean, that was the worst day of my coaching career, that when Ben Stokes, I'll never forget, I was on a FaceTime with my wife that night back in Perth, and I was sitting there in my little room in Leeds, and she goes, what are you doing? I go, what do you mean, what am I doing? She goes, what are you drinking? I said, I'm drinking scotch. She goes, what do you mean you don't drink? I go, I do tonight, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I'm drinking scotch by myself in my room, like, go figure. Anyway, that was the worst day. But what do do I do next? And it went from then turned out to be the te- worst day of my coaching career to probably the 10 best days of my coaching career. So I remember lying in my bed that night, Pete, and ringing through my mind was uh, Don Pike, the head coach of the Adelaide Crows footy club a couple of years ago. And he told me after they lost the grand final to Richmond, the mistake they made was they didn't address it soon enough. They let that, you know, the guys went away, they had their off-season, they came back, and there was still scars. It's a bit like the discussion we had about Steve Smith and Dave Warner. So I was lying there, and we'd organised to go for a walk the next morning with the team, go and have a walk through the city, get some more abuse from the English crowd, build a bit of resilience that way, right? Um, have a coffee together, try, let's shake ourselves off. But through that sleepless night, I kept thinking about Pikey, and I thought, you know what, no, if we don't address this head on we could easily we we might not bounce back from this so the next morning i I organized with our analyst up in the boardroom i said i want to show the players that partnership between stokes um and the number 11 so he goes oh okay i said can you do that he said yep so we got down into the foyer of the hotel instead of going for some boys we're not going for a while, let's go straight up to the boardroom. And they're going, what do you mean? I said, let's go up to the boardroom. So we went up to the boardroom. I said, this is what we're going to do. We talk about elite learning. That's one of our values. We talk about mateship. We talk about professionalism. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to watch the partnership again. And you can literally see the boys going, oh, you could see them drop in their seat. And after four balls of that partnership, Peter Siddle, who's one of the all-time great blokes, he goes, oh, coach, come on, mate, like, we don't need to watch this again. I said, Sids, I'll tell you what, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't want to face this, no worries, leave now. Walk out of the room right now. This isn't about criticism. This is about us learning and getting better. Because if we don't, we're dead. Hmm. And I remember talking, and we went through the whole thing, and through that we started having discussion. Pat Cummins was interviewed a few days ago um, by Adam Spencer, and he said, he said, look, I thought JL had got this wrong. 
we had this, I thought he'd got it wrong, but he said it ended up being the best thing we did because we addressed the issue and we learned from it. The next thing we did, and as confronting as that, that was for Paney and for Nathan Lyon, we addressed it. So we go, right, oh. the next thing we did, on an Ashes tour, what usually happens is four or five guys, we have a practice game between test matches, four or five guys, go, or three or four guys go to London, they go shopping with their wives and girlfriends, they go to Harrods and they posh it up and just relax for a few days before the next test. I said, you know what, guys? No. I'm sorry to tell you, you have to tell your missus this, but we're all going to Derbyshire together. And Derbyshire's not the best place in London, but we're all going to Derbyshire together and we're going to all go there and we're going to, Payne, you're meant to have this day off, but you're coming. Yeah, no worries, coach. Maybe it was Pat Cummins. Pat, you're coming. Yeah, no worries. So we all went to Derbyshire together. And I remember we played this game of touch footy when we arrived in Derbyshire. And, mate, it was like an AFL grand final. The intensity of that game. Nathan Lyon went over on his ankle. Oh, no, we shouldn't have done it. No, bullshit. It was awesome. The boys are sort of... We've sat in the boardroom and confronted it. Now we're getting some energy up by And we played a game of touch footy. And the boys, they went really hard. And I went, yeah, I like this. This is a bit of energy. And then I said to the guys, usually a three-day practice game against Derbyshire. Is, it's like a wicket practice. I said, boys, we are going to smash Derbyshire. We're going to take them on. There's no practice game here. We're going to go hard like a test match. Yeah, yeah, let's go. And I said, I want to see how you perform. There's spots up for grabs here. We beat Derbyshire on a flat wicket in two days and one hour. We smashed them. I'm going, righto. I like what I'm seeing here. And then we got to Old Trafford. I actually had lunch with Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the great um, three hours of my life. So I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, mate. What, Virgo, we could talk. We could do a whole podcast on absolutely. my three hours with Alex Ferguson. But anyway, <laughs> yes. so then I'm pumped. And then we go to Manchester and we retain the Ashes. And it, we then had the greatest celebration in the change room. I haven't laughed so much in my whole life as that three hours, as you know, Pete, what a great experience that is yep. winning in Australian change room. And... So it went from the worst day of my coaching career to the best day. And it's another great about building resilience, Virgil. If you have the courage as a leader to make tough calls, you do what you think's right for the team, not the individuals. And then that was another brilliant example of that. And we ended up retaining the ashes and went from the darkest day to one of our best days we'll ever remember in Australian cricket. That's uh, brilliant. That's um uh, yeah, that, that is a very definition of resilience and also having the tough conversations because that would have been extremely unpleasant for the players to go through that, uh, watching that partnership. Again, Christ knows I can't watch it again. So um, You and yeah. me both, Burge. Yeah, you know, this, this, is, this is a true story. For those who, remember, who are listening to this, remember, we not only missed the run out, but with, I think, two runs to get... Nathan Lyon, we'd done this stupid call out of desperation about four overs before um, off, off Pat Cummins. It was not out. Missed. And then, so therefore, we had no referrals left. Yeah. Nathan Lyon, Stokes goes to sweep one. It is plum. The umpire gives it not out, right? So we've got no referrals left. Anyway, when I got back from, this is, I swear to God, this is what happened. I got home from um, to Perth. I had jet lag. Anyway, I, I got woken up three nights in a row by Nathan Lyon bowling, big LBW appeal, 
waiting for the umpire to give it out, and the umpire gave it, and it woke me up three nights in a row. I was jet lagged <laughs> to the right, and, and that scene, th- I had that recurring dream three nights in a row. Like, mate, you reckon you don't want to ever watch it again, yeah. Sergio? My <laughs> gosh, I can gave imagine. me some scars, but hopefully it made me tougher. Mate, I've got one last question because I know we're going a little bit over time, but we've got a lot of performance managers and fitness coaches and things like this who listen to this conversation. And if you can just give me two minutes of what, what is the best and worst thing that a fitness coach, performance manager, whatever you want to call us, I, I couldn't care, can offer a coach? Honest conversations. Yep. That's number one. Have it. I, I had a great physio, Nick Jones, at the Wacker. I loved him. We used to, we used to argue a fair bit. But I respected him because he was so strong in what he believed in. And, and in great leadership, you must know what you stand for and what, what you won't compromise on. And I really admired that in, um, in our physio. And because of that, we had a great relationship. Brilliant. He knew what he stood for. And we had some, we had some real arguments, but that was okay. We, we sorted those out. I respected him. He, he knew what he stood for. He was strong. Um, the second thing is, like all... Everything. You've got to work together. Don't work in silos. Work together. Work yep. together. And you usually work together through honest conversations. Um, it's really important that if you're working together, you can create miracles. If you try and do it separately, you, literally it's no good for anyone because you're not going in the same direction. Um, and the third thing I'd say, and I remember this as a player, as a fitness trainer or as the S&C, run at the back. Don't run at the front. And what I mean by that, I've seen S&C guys who are really fit and they're, they're the rabbit, right? So they're the ones and they, you know, they feel good about themselves because they run at the front all the time and they win the 2K time trial or they're at the front with the top five or six. Well, that's great. It might be great for your ego, but I want you running at the back. I want you running at back, helping the bloke who's coming last, the weaker links in our chain. I want you supporting them to get better because often the guys who run at the front they don't necessarily, mate, the ones who usually run at the front are really self-motivated. Yep. They're either really talented or they do the extra work. So run with the guy at the back for us. Yep. Get the weakest link strong for us because ultimately we need depth. We need depth and we need the weaker links or the less resilient players or the less mentally strong players. We need them to get stronger. So build up our depth by working with the weaker players to get them better. You still obviously give the everyone your, your, respo- your support and respect, but run at the back, not at the front, if that makes sense. Yep, perfect sense. It's certainly never Great been message. an issue with me, uh, JL. I was always at the back <laughs> regardless, but uh, yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying, absolutely. JL, I just want to finish with uh, the way the Australian cricket team finishes with, uh, with the song. And a lot of our listeners would know that there's a particular song that the Australian cricket team sing and it's led by a songmaster. And uh, if they say that the uh, being captain of the Australian cricket team is the, uh, the second most or maybe the most important job in the, in the country, then being the songmaster is probably not far behind. And you had that role for a while. Yeah, it's a great, great honour, that's for sure, Pete. Um, it was the tradition of the song was it started off with Rod Marsh, who then passed it. And I've studied all this, obviously. Rod Marsh, the great Rod Marsh, in a, during an Ashes uh, test years ago he then passed it to Alan Border 
the, the young Aussie coming through. And Alan Border never sang the song because the Australian cricket team, when he was songmaster, <laughs> never won a game. And that's actually a true story. And then AB, when he became captain, the other tradition is you can't be the songmaster and the captain. Um, Alan Border passed it to David Boone, who really took hold of it. And David Boone then passed it to Ian Healy, who then passed it to Ricky Ponting. And we were in Sri Lanka, punter's first test matches as the captain of the Australian cricket team. He handed it to me, and I swear to God, it was one of the great moments of my life. Um, like I said, I was never the Australian cricket captain to be the song master. was a, another great accolade. And when I retired, I handed it to Mike Hussey, um, and I wrote him a letter, and I passed it. And I'll never, this is how, how I sum it up. When My last time of doing it, we'd just beat in England 5-0, and during that series... We decided, because okay, we were so desperate to win that series, as you know, Pete, underneath the Southern Cross, and then you go second verse, same as the first, and then you sing the the first verse again, right? Now, when we won the first test in Brisbane, it was normal. Then we won the second test in Adelaide, that amazing test match where Warney and then Mike Hussey hit that cover drop to win. So I decided, okay, we're not only just sing second verse, same as the third, Third verse, same as the second, because now we're two nil up, and then we beat, we retain the ashes at the Wacker. Fourth verse, same as the third. So our throats are nearly a red raw by this stage. Then we win the fourth test. It was that, it was that the night of the singing the song that I decided to retire. I retired the next day, um, and I, but we sang the last song, and then we go out on um, James Packer's boat. We're at Sydney, Warney retired, McGrath retired, myself retired, same test match. We go out on the boat, and I've written a letter to Mike Hussey. We're all out on this boat in the middle of the Sydney harbour. It's about after midnight. We'd all had a few drinks, and I said, righto, everyone in for the team. We hadn't sang the team song yet. Everyone said, I said, even the girls. I said, girls, this has never happened before. You're invited in. So all the partners were on the deck, all the, likewise, the support staff. And we sixth verse, same as the fifth. So we are just belting this song out now, and it was brilliant. My Cassie first season in the middle singing it, and uh, and at the end of the song, Jane McGrath, beautiful Jane McGrath, Glenn's wife, who passed away. We know the McGrath Foundation, and Jane McGrath it was the last time I saw her alive. Had this magnificent laugh, and she came up to she goes, put a, gave me a big hug, and she goes, JL. Now I finally get it. I always thought Glenn just wanted to stay. He said, oh, I've got to wait to the team song. I always thought he just wanted to wait so he didn't have to come back to me and the kids in the hotel room at home. She goes, now I get it. That was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And three or four of the wives came up that night. She goes, oh, my God, Jay, I finally get it. That is so much fun. That is awesome. And that sums up the team song, right, Pete? It's... Uh, for us, it's really what you'd have noticed in that Amazon documentary. The one thing that we kept sacred was the team song. Yep. It wasn't shown, um, but it's one of the great things about being Australian cricketer. Win a test match, have a few beers, listen to Johnny Williamson, True Blue, and K San, Cold Chisel, and then we get around, we sing the team song together, and then that's the end of a great test match and the start of the next test match coming up. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, be part of those songs uh, many times, and they're certainly my strongest memory of uh, 
working with the Australian cricket team. JL, it's been an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate your time. I know you've got a lot of demands on your time, but uh, we really appreciate it. It's been one of the most enjoyable hours I've, uh, I've had in a long time in this uh, pretty depressing Absolutely. time of our lives. And, uh, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it half as much as Burjo and I have. So, uh, JL, all the best in the, in the future. And the, I hope we play some cricket pretty soon. And uh, I'm sure you'll continue to uh, make Australians proud. Thanks, mate. Thanks, thanks so much, Thanks, Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Great to speak to you guys.